to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll see a series on seven churches in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write this. The words of the Son of God Regarding uh, um, what's going on in the churches and what does Christ think of the churches is very real. Now, as most of you here, especially as members, know we are members of the Southern Baptist Convention. And our membership or our desire to be in association with the SBC has diminished over the last couple of years due to several um, different um, scandals or different uh, controversies, I should say, rather. Uh, over the last couple of years, but but this past week, what came out was not was more than just a controversy. It is a full blown scandal, and if you're not aware of it, I I think it's a good time to let you know that um, after an internal investigation was completed um, by guideposts and submitted to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
it was revealed that there has been widespread and systemic sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches far worse than anyone ever imagined. The stories are absolutely horrific. I read through some of them. We're talking about little kids who were molested. We're talking about women who were abused, um, um, homosexual abuses, everything you could think of under the sun. It is absolutely, as one a commentator said on it, apocalyptic for the SBC. Um, it, is, it is something that is a fire of a, as a Category 5 storm and it might destroy the denomination altogether. Uh, one of the worst stories that came out of it was um, regarding, regarding one man who is, um, who is high up, and that's Johnny Hunt. If you're not aware who Johnny Hunt was, he was the SBC president from 2010 to 2011, and he's currently, he's currently the senior, or he resigned from his post, the senior vice president of the North American Mission Board on Evangelism, a pretty well-known figure and author and one of the most salacious stories that came out was how um, he raped a, uh, a young pastor's wife, like half of his age, back in 2010 when he was the president of the SBC and demanded that she accommodate him three times a day or else. When you hear these kind of stories, the question you ask yourself is, how could this happen? The executive committee, which knew about these issues, covered it up. Every one of them. They kept a record, which they released this week for transparency under pressure, but they had a record of all of these cases, but they covered it up. Local churches told people to be quiet, or they ignored the accusations, or they simply swept it under the carpet. How could such a thing happen? And if that doesn't horrify you, I don't know what could. It's embarrassing. It's scandalous. I mean, every news media organization in the world that is, that is humanistic and secular is jumped on this this week. The church has a black eye and the name of Christ has been dragged through the mud. And even worse, we've left a trail of victims in the name of the gospel. Not we, grace and truth, but the convention. I have no reason to stay in this convention no more. In the next business meeting, it will be my, my resolve to ask the church to vote us out once and for all. But the question, how could this be possible? How could a denomination that for the most part is solidly evangelical be so corrupt how could a denomination that has seen the great resurgence and have come so far and we've seen what Moeller has done with the seminaries and we've seen how the, the denomination went from being so far gone 30 years ago to solidly evangelical. It just is a reminder that Satan is alive and well. And it's a reminder that wherever the good seeds are planted, bad seeds are planted as well. Wherever the weed is sown, tares are sown. And it's also a reminder that although the denomination has its trouble, that doesn't mean every church is lost. That doesn't mean every pastor is no good. It means that there's a few bad apples. But there's an old saying, a few bad apples spoil the bushel. And so until this convention gets its act together, I don't know what to think of it going forward. But 
Why do I bring this up? Because the church of Thyatira was in a similar situation. The church in Thyatira was also a church that for the most part was a good solid church. It was, it, it, Christ has good things to say about it. But it also had a few bad apples. And as I said, a few bad apples can spoil the bushel. And the Lord who sees and knows everything knows who the bad apples are. And he identifies them in this warning, in this letter to the church of Thyatira. And it's a message for us that we ought to take seriously the things God takes seriously and not take lightly the things that God doesn't take lightly. So, so let's direct our attention to the church of Thyatira. First, let me give you a little context. The church of Thyatira is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, the last church we looked at. Um, and it's... Uh, and, and it's a small city. It's probably the least known, the least remarkable, and is probably the least important of the seven churches that the Lord writes to. Really, nothing is known about it. There's no significant military, political, or administrative responsibilities within the Roman Empire. It is noted for nothing other than its commercial enterprises. It was a, a center of manufacturing. It was a center of marketing, and, and, and its distinguishing characteristic was the large number of trade guilds that flourished here. And we know this going into the second century. Now, to give you an understanding what a trade guild is, it's sort of like a trade union like we have today. Does anybody here work in a trade union or have a unionized job? I know my wife does. I, I know, brother, you do. So, so when you have a unionized job, you're, you're required to pay dues and to be part of the union and submit to a certain bylaws that govern that union, Right? So, so in these trade guilds or trade unions that existed uh, in Thyatira, you were required to participate in the festivities, the pagan festivities of the Roman Empire. You were required by the trade guilds to offer sacrifices to Caesar, to attend pagan feasts. And attending a pagan feast meant two things. It meant you had to eat food that was sacrificed on altars to pagan gods which the Bible clearly prohibits. Secondly, you were also, because you were participating in that pagan uh, ritual. And then secondly, as part of the pagan rituals, and, and this may be bizarre, but in ancient paganism, you also engaged in, in sexual intercourse with people at the festival as a way to celebrate the gods, because these were all fertility gods. And you say, what? Yeah, that's what happened in pagan religions. And so this puts Christians in a particularly difficult bind. Because if you're living as a Christian in Thyatira and you have a trade and you are a silversmith or you're a carpenter or you're a plumber, whatever your job is and you belong to one of these guilds, if you do not participate in these events, you're out of work and you won't get employed. So you see the challenge and the pressure that Christians would have faced in such an environment would have made it very difficult. Now, the kinds of workers that would have been involved there would have not been like us today, but would have been uh, linen workers, tent makers, dyers, uh, tanners, potters, bakers, bronzesmiths, slave dealers, uh, all would converge in this city in hopes of doing business and making money. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, 14, we also know that our dear sister Lydia, who is mentioned as the first convert um, of Paul's in Philippi, was from Thyatira. She was a trader of purple. She was a wealthy woman. She had a home that she opened her house for use of 
a house church. And so this was the challenge that Christians faced. And the pressure to cave in was high. Put yourself in their shoes. And think about, we face situations like that, maybe not as uh, explicit, but wherever you work, there's always that pressure to comply with certain uh, unethical standards or immoral events or activities that you know are not right with God, but if you want to look good with the company and if you want to get a promotion and if you want acceptance among your peers, you know you got to be involved, right? And so is the case with the Christians here. And so with that, Christ writes to them a word of commendation. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. This is a thriving church. This is a church that is bearing all the fruits of the church of Ephesus, but unlike Ephesus, they're abounding in love. It's a church that's hard at work. They're laboring in the gospel. They're laboring in the church. They're toiling in the kingdom. They're patiently enduring, like the church of Pergamum under persecution. But they have faith and love. They're, they're growing. Their love is increasing. Unlike Ephesus, which lost their first love and was backsliding, uh, here at Thyatira, the church is actually growing in love. And so there's a lot to be said. Here is a good church. This is the kind of church you want to go to. And it's all the evidences of God's grace. So what's wrong with the church? Well, what was wrong with the church was they had an issue of a wrong understanding of what love meant. You see, Christian love calls us to bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has anything against one another, let it go. And love covers a multitude of sins. But sometimes that mentality can get extrapolated and interpreted in a wrong way. Where love means let's just tolerate the wrongdoing and sin of others in the name of love. That word toleration is very important because it's exactly what Christ has against them. Listen to what he says. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So here's the issue there. It's toleration. It's toleration of someone in the church who is doing wrong, who is preaching false doctrine. In fact, what is said here is that we're talking about a false prophetess, a false prophetess. Now, her name isn't Jezebel. Okay, let me just make that clear. Just like when the Lord says to the church of Pergamon, you're following the teachings of the Balaamites. These are figurative words. If you know who Jezebel, she is an Old Testament figure. And her name is synonymous um, with women of ill repute. Okay, So even today, when you know of a woman of low moral standards, it's not uncommon you'll hear someone call them a Jezebel. Um, in fact, there are some, there's a website called Jezebel, and it's of women who celebrate their flagrant immoral behavior. Um, but again, in society, we celebrate sin. That's our society today. Um, so Jezebel was a 
was a term that was a negative connotation. It's used symbolically here to identify a woman in the church who had set herself up as a teacher, as a false teacher. And more importantly, it says a prophetess. She, this is a woman who was prophesying uh, in the name of the Lord. And her prophetic ministry was not a ministry at all. She was leading God's people to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and engage in sexual immorality. Now, you would think that a good church wouldn't stand for this. I ask the question again, how could a church that's doing good tolerate and allow something like this to happen? Same thing with the SBC. And the Lord had issue with this. He had serious issue. Their problem was they were tolerating this woman and they were allowing her to go unchallenged. And they were probably doing it in the name of love. But who is Jezebel? Just to give you an idea of the serious and gravity of that name. If you know the the background of the Old Testament in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, we are introduced to her as a Sidonian princess. She, She marries King Ahab of the Northern Kingdom, and as you know, the Northern Kingdom is in rebellion with God from day one. There is not one king who does right in the eyes of the Lord in the Northern Kingdom. Every king in the Northern Kingdom does what's evil in the sight of the Lord, they worship the twin uh, uh, idols in Bethel. It is, it is completely a, a sham. It's an apostate uh, uh, kingdom. Okay? And, and, it, and, and its low point, probably its lowest point ever is when Ahab is king. Ahab has no backbone. And he marries a pagan princess called Jezebel. And she's very strong-willed and domineering. And he is completely henpecked by her. And she... Uh, creates a lot of antichrist policies in Israel. Uh, she institutes um, the worship of the Canaanite god and goddess Baal and Ashtra as public policy. You, you must worship the Canaan gods or else you would be punished. Um, if that were not enough, she employed over 850 prophets of Baal to serve in this cult and in, in, in making herself the chief priestess. She's responsible for killing Naboth and stealing his vineyard as a gift for Ahab. And she's infamous for slaying the prophets of God and even hunting down Elijah the prophet. And her husband does absolutely nothing about it. He's seen as a coward, a man who listens to every word she says. But she dies a horrific death. Um, eventually, she is, um, you know, she is clearly an enemy of Israel. She's an enemy of God. Uh, the prophet brings a prophecy against her uh, that she will indeed meet a horrible end to life. Uh, she falls from a tower, she dies, and the dogs basically eat her whole body, and she's left with nothing but a skull and her hands on the ground. They can't even bury her. She's completely devoured by wild dogs. It was a judgment on her. And so for the Lord to use the term Jezebel to describe this woman who was in the local church creating havoc, demonstrates how awful she must have been. Just as Jezebel had corrupted Israel in the Old Covenant, body leading them into idolatry and immorality, this prophetess is doing the same exact thing. She's leading the church into apostasy. In fact, we see that she is, has a great number of disciples as well. So what's the church's failure? The failure is they let it happen. They let it happen. Why did they let it happen? The answer, maybe it was a false understanding of love, 
but it always lies in convenience, doesn't it? It's hard to confront people that are wrong in the church. It's hard to deal with people that are uh, um, that may be controversial. And people, just like Ahab had no backbone, there's people and there's in the church that have no backbone. There's leaders that have no backbone. And they won't stand up to the false prophets and the false teachers in the church. And when you tolerate false doctrine, it's like a cancer. And it spreads in the church. It's like the bad apple that spoils the bushel. It's like letting weeds grow in your garden and devour your plants. And that was the guilt of this church. This is very relevant today, not just for the Southern Baptist Convention, but also in churches in general, because we live in a society, let's be realistic today, is inundated with sex. We live in a sex-crazed society. You know, talk to Pastor Paul. He's 92. The things that exist and happen today, the things we see on television or hear in the news or hear on radio or the language that's used, it's insane. There's no limit and there's no boundary to immorality. We have become desensitized and in many cases the church tolerates and overlooks it. In some cases, churches even celebrate it. For example, 50 years ago, it was unheard of of a couple cohabitating within the local church. Today, it is common. As you've heard me quote this before, 60% of evangelicals uh, uh, polled by the Southern Baptist Convention thinks there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing immoral. The idea of remaining pure until marriage is seen as something outdated, it's far gone. Why should we do something so stupid? It's archaic. And so fear of not offending anyone, many churches simply tolerate it. Our culture, it's common for women's fashion to blatantly emphasize her sexuality, bringing attention to her anatomy in such a way that men pine after her. And we let that go in the church too. We lower our standards. And if we try to address that where said oh you're legalistic you're legalistic um it's seen just just look at the whole problem of pornography in the churches uh, so many people have have just been given over to pornography uh sexual immorality the 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 scandals one after the other of pastors going down of members going down I had a pastor's conference I was at recently, or, or a pastor's fellowship, and around the room we went, what's the biggest issue your church is dealing with? And one by one by one, every pastor said, sexual immorality. It's out of control. So what do we do? Well, everyone's doing it. Let's just let it go. We've got to tolerate it. That, that almost seems like the right thing to do, right? That seems how people think today, right? Everyone's smoking marijuana. Let's legalize it and tax it, right? All right, everyone's going to process anyway. Let's legalize it and tax it. And the church gets the same mentality. Everybody's doing it. Let's just tolerate it in the name of love. There is nothing loving about tolerating sin. Absolutely nothing. Let me make it clear that when you send a message that sin is okay, you are misleading people and sending them to hell just like the prophetess Jezebel. You are coming into conflict with God's word and you are contradicting the word of God. Several years ago, author Jen Wilkin popularized the saying that God only whispers about sexual immorality and we should not shout about things that God only whispers about. 
and I said this also because this, this issue keeps coming up, we must make it clear. God does not whisper. Listen to these Bible verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Um, turn in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to see this. Let's see what God whispers about and what he shouts about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You know what that means, do not be deceived? This is an area a lot of people are deceived on. And you deceive yourself, right? It's very deceitful. Be not deceived, neither the sexually immoral, make note of that, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Do I need to make that more clear? That's God's word. That doesn't seem like whispering to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 goes down a little further where the whole issue is dealt with. And look what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Run. Get away. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How about Hebrews 13, 4? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire so is the church just trying to be self-righteous when we speak out against sexual immorality no it's the one it's this thing that'll keep you out of heaven it's something that god hates god created sexual intimacy to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage anything outside of that is perversion and god detests it it's simple not popular. Oh, no, it's not popular. Just me saying this could get me arrested depending where I'm, what, what sphere I'm in. But I could tell you, it's biblical. And you'll, you'll be popular with God. So what's the warning to the church then, okay? Obviously, the Lord wants to make it clear that that we want to be pure. He wants his people to be pure. He wants his people to be right. But let's look at, at um, let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2, Church of Pergamum. I'm sorry, Church of Thyatira. I'm, I'm doing everything here with paper, so. Listen to what he says in verse 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, 
and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I mean. First of all, this questions, is Jezebel, quote-unquote Jezebel, a Christian? Is she part of the local church there? We don't know. We don't know. Is she a believer? I don't know. But notice the Lord says, I've given her a chance to repent, and she didn't. And he says, I threw her into a sickbed. God can bring judgment on you. Let me be clear. God could bring judgment on you. God is still in heaven. There's a warning not to take the Lord's Supper without examining yourself because some of you are sick and some of you are even dying. God could bring temporal judgment on you. And if you're a believer, he will do so more because he loves you and in discipline. I love my children and I love them so much that when they do wrong, I'll discipline them. And sometimes that comes in the form of physical sickness. I've suffered physical sickness myself in the past year. And one of the questions I ask when I'm on my back, I look up and say, what is God trying to tell me? The warning is to those who have not yet repented that they too will come under judgment and her children will die. I don't know if it's speaking of her physical children or her disciples, that ultimately their cult is going to die out. They corrupted the church, and Christ is sovereign over his church. And he's basically saying, listen, I know what's going on, and if you don't deal with it, I'm going to deal with it. And when I do deal with it, you will all know I am he. You know, we live in a world where people don't believe in God, where people question God's existence. There will come a day when he will return, and everyone will know I am he. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. People think they're getting away with sin. They think they're getting away with doing all this stuff. The Southern Baptist Convention, when I just read all that stuff, all those guys thought they were getting away with it for years. They were exposed, but even worse, you will not get away with anything when you stand before God. You see, listen, the world's going to be the world. People are going to do what they want to do. That, that's That's... We shouldn't worry about that because if it wasn't for God's grace in your life, we would all be doing the same thing. But in his church, in his people, God demands purity and holiness. And he will bring judgment on any church that powders that down, that, that lowers the moral standard and tolerates the teachings of Jezebel. You know, I was reading recently an article in the CDC in the last six years that sexually transmitted diseases have increased like never before. There's a wage to sin. Finally, we want to look at the reward, the blessing that comes for those who hadn't come under the corrupt influence of Jezebel. He says in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. That phrase, the deep things of Satan, can mean one of two things. It can either mean the depths of sin. You see, when you plunge into sin, you, there's no depth to how far things can go. I, I've known people, what, years ago I had a friend call me. He knew I had went into the ministry, I'd become a Christian. We used to run together, go to nightclubs, and you know, we, we lived you know, an immoral life before at that time. And I'll never forget, he called me years later, he says, Rob, you can't believe how much worse I've gotten. And he told me stories, and I thought, I thought, wow, he went that far, that down, that deep. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would have been there too. 
Until Christ arrests your life, there's no depth. Look at, just look around you today. When you think about it, where's the limits? Where's the boundaries anymore? It used to be where there were some things you just never, nothing shocked. There's no shock value in anything no more. There is an absolutely zero shock value because nothing is sacred anymore. And what do we do? We celebrate it. Only so far that we can go as a nation like that. Ultimately, Christ says to them, he says to those who have not come under Jezebel's corrupt influence, he has very simple words to them. To the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, and I do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. Stay faithful. And I add on you no extra burden. You know what this means? Things are bad around us. That doesn't mean we should intensify or create extra burdens on Christians. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay faithful. John Stock comments, we must not overreact to an extreme laxity around us by developing an extreme rigidity in ourselves. Christ has no new burden for those living in an environment where standards are low. We are simply to hold fast to what we already have. That is to say, what he has already given us in his written word. What is this? It is balanced, joyful, exhilarating righteousness of the Bible, the glorious liberty of the royal law. What joy we have in Christ, the liberty, the freedom we have in him. Now let me conclude with a few words. I know it's difficult. This is a tough text. You say, gee, of all the texts you preach on for the church barbecue, well, this is my series. I'm going through it. But when is a good time to preach on us? Tell me. There's never a good time. Right? But this is real. This is what we're confronting with. And I think, if anything, with the report that came out on the SBC this past week, it makes it very real and very relevant. Look at the promise that Jesus gives. To the one who conquers, who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what the promise is? You know what the blessing is? That we're going to rule with Christ one day. Right now, we're nobodies. Right now, we're just, we're just everyday citizens. And, and we see the rulers of this world, and we see in their pomp, and we see them in their, in their pride and their arrogance, and they attend their big meetings and their summits, and they dictate and they tell us what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, and we see people going to war and rumors of war. But guess what? They're all going to the grave one day like you and I. They will all stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. They will all be judged one day. And Christ makes a great promise that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We who are Christians, we who belong to him, one day we will co-rule with him in Christ. We will, we will reign over the heavens and the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have authority. Not authority that's in us, but authority that Christ has conferred because he loves us. See, remember this. God created us in his image. And as image bearers of God, God gave Adam and Eve reign over the earth. He said rule over the earth, but they forfeited that rule. They forfeited that rule because they chose to go their own way instead of following God. Christ came to give that back to us. The first Adam failed. The second Adam came to redeem lost mankind and give us 
what we are called to do to rule over the earth. But it's only for those who conquer in this world. (laughs) Make no mistake about it, the one who cannot rule over his or her passions in this life will not be made a ruler of much more in the next life. Those who cannot rule over their passions will be ruled over with a rod of iron in the age to come. But if you can rule over yourself now, if you can conquer your passions, conquer your lusts, and live in purity and in commitment and fidelity to Christ, he will make you a ruler over many cities. That's a great promise. And finally, I will give him the great morning star. The morning star is used in Revelation 22:16 to refer to Christ himself. And I believe that that's Christ saying, listen, the greatest reward of all is not ruling, but it's me. That's the greatest reward of being a Christian is knowing God, seeing him face to face. This world is very alluring. The beautiful weather, the trees, the guy with the fancy car driving on the highway, all the things that money could buy. It's all very attractive, but it's a mirage. You know what a mirage is? When you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst, your mind, your brain, which is deprived of oxygen, starts to play tricks on you. And you see what you believe to be an oasis in the desert. Oh, I could go, I'm going to go there and I'm going to satisfy and quench my thirst. And you run and you pick up a handful of sand and put it in your mouth and you choke and you gag on it. All the stuff that this world has for us now, the the promises of pleasure, it's a mirage. All you're doing is putting handfuls of sand in your mouth. It will not satisfy. Christ has come to me. I am the bread of life. I am the living waters. He who believes in me will have water welling up with him for eternal life, true life. And that life begins now. But we must believe, we must trust and come to faith in Christ. Yes, and that's a mirage too. God is good. He's given us so much. And so with that, we're going we're gonna to close our sermon so Mr. Softy uh, continues to... Uh, <laughs> the devil has his ways, doesn't he? <laughs> but to God be the glory. I look forward to that day. I enjoy this life just as much as any of us do. But I... I know I'm going to enjoy the next life so much more. And everything here is just preparing for us for a weight of glory. And so let's take, let's take the, this away. Let's learn to be conquerors. I don't know where each and every one of you are, but one thing we will not do as Grace and True Church, and one thing that no church should do, is tolerate, tolerate the teachings that contradict the Scripture. When God tells us, Be ye holy, for I am holy, We dare not cross swords with God and say, no, no, that's okay. You could do what you want. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. It's eternal. It's pure. It's righteous. We love you, God, and we pray that you please bless the word, bless our meal that we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.